there are a lot of businesses who stood people down prior to the introduction of the JobKeeper directives, but technically they weren't eligible to stand people down because they're just a decline in trade is not sufficient to exercise the stand-down provisions. You're listening to Australia's podcast for accountants, Tax Talks, the podcast to run and grow your firm. Welcome to another COVID-19 update of Tax Talks, update number 12. This is Heidel Robson and thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. In the last update, update number 11, we looked at employment law before COVID-19. In this update, let's look at what changed under the COVID-19 directives. Ben Thompson of Employment Hero will walk you through the changes. Before the actual interview, I asked Ben a few more questions about the general employment rules we already touched on in the last update. And Ben made some very good comments, which I wanted to share with you. So we will start with those and then lead into what actually changed under COVID-19. A way of visualizing it that I find helpful is a bit like a pyramid and, you know, the general employment standards. So the Australian employment standards, which are minimum conditions of employment uh, legislated to cover all employees. They are the, the base of the pyramid. And then on top of on top of that foundation, you have the award system. And then you can exclude the award and replace the award with an enterprise agreement. And you mentioned that enterprise agreements are typically large businesses. They are more often than not are, but there's thousands upon thousands of enterprise agreements out there for SMEs as well. It's just that they're not as common anymore, but they may still exist. They need to be terminated and many of them are still operating. And then on top of that, you have your common law contracts. So your employment contracts, which vary the terms and conditions for individuals, but not to the exclusion of any of those other instruments that might apply. So at the bottom, we have the general employment standards and they basically set the absolute minimum. You cannot employ anybody below those general employment standards, correct? Yeah, that's your minimum wage or your annual leave, your personal carer's leave. I won't go through all of them because I haven't refreshed my mind on all of the minimum conditions recently, but yeah, that provides that. And so those general employment standards, they can't have an override through an award or a common law contract. They are the absolute minimum, correct? That's right. Yeah, you will not get an um, enterprise agreement approved if it undercuts the, the, the national employment standards. I'm oh, sorry, it's actually called national employment standard, not general employment standard. Yes. What do the awards usually add? I assume they increase the minimum wage from the national employment standard to a higher level, correct? Yes and no. I mean, the minimum wage as a base rate probably isn't that much different to the minimum wage in most awards. Understanding what an award does, if I can, I'll give you a two-minute history lesson on, on how, they, how they were formed up. So basically, there was a, a case back in the early 1900s, I think it was 1905, called the Harvester Judgment, and it set the Australian um, framework for agreeing terms of employment and it, in, in the form of an agreement and awards have just been iterations upon iterations upon iterations of agreements that apply to industries so to an industry sector like shipping or agriculture or retail and each year those awards are negotiated 
and arbitrated in the Fair Work Commission. So you usually have your industry association and your union um, representing the, the workers in that industry negotiating any amendments to that award. And, and that happens every year. And then, as I say, over the many decades, those awards have, have formed up into what's called now the modern awards. And so rather than just consider them as the minimum standards, they're really supposed to contemplate the conditions that are relevant to the industries to which they apply. And that's why each of them has like the real, the real sort of complexity of them is in the penalties, loadings and allowances that apply for work performed within those industries. And even on you know, different work sites and different types of days and weather and all sorts of things that then determine how much people are going to get paid. But the actual base rate isn't necessarily that much different to the, to the minimum wage, the Australian minimum wage. So the awards fill out the gaps that the National Employment Standard leaves open. Yeah, well, they, they determine employment conditions relevant to a particular industry at a national level or potentially you know, smaller level. And then you can actually override the awards with an enterprise agreement. The enterprise agreement then can vary conditions of the award on balance, um, but and then still has to pass a better off overall test. I see. So it has to be a better off overall. Yes. If you could undercut the award through an enterprise agreement, then of course everybody would do that. Yeah. So it has to, you when you apply and, and make an enterprise agreement, you literally have to, set out every condition of the award and show that you have accommodated what the award provides and then show how you are doing or providing flexibility on top of the base of the award, which is, you know, it's, and the way that that's been interpreted and applied over the last sort of five or six years has been um, very stringently applied and has led to a, a far fewer enterprise agreements being made. And why do enterprises do enterprise agreements just so that they don't have to bother with all those different awards that they just have one agreement or why would they do it? Well, usually that's when it, you, you move from industrial relations. So talk, think about the award at an industry level. So industrial relations relating to a union and an employer group negotiating an award at an industry level. Then enterprise agreements, as the name implies, relate to an individual enterprise. So that becomes sort of workplace relations. And the reason you would do it is that you can strike a bargain or a particular arrangement for your individual workplace and its unique requirements and the requirements of your employees. And then you can agree it as, as just employer and a group of employees. And that only applies to that individual business, although there are provisions to make multi-business enterprise agreement. The awards don't apply once you exceed a certain wage. I think it's around 148,000 or so. Is that right? Look, you could still be technically covered by an award and be paid a lot more. It's not like everything falls away. Or yeah. pay is basically they're no longer regulated by the award, but everything else, annual leave, work conditions, etc., is still covered by the award. Yeah, well, either the award or if you, if you again, if you keep in mind that that pyramid, you're going to be covered by all levels of that pyramid, but you might be paid a salary that's like way on top of anything 
in the award, but it doesn't change the structure that sits below below you in terms of regulation and employment law. How difficult is it to change somebody from a part-time employment to casual? Yeah, so again, another concept to bear in, like to sort of have in mind when you think about moving from part-time or permanent to casual or vice versa is that your employment is agreed with your employer and once it's been agreed you know that job is is then quite static so if you're a part-timer and you're working 20 hours a week monday wednesday and friday and you've agreed to a certain salary with your employer that then is your employment and any significant alteration to that has to be agreed by both parties and it needs to um, contemplate that if it changes significantly if you go from a part-time employee working 20 hours a week to a casual employee working five hours a week or some sort of random number of hours the original job is no longer exists so you're kind of terminated from the original job and employed in a new job as a casual so you have to agree to do that so you have to agree to terminate the original position and create a new position and that's where you get into some complexities around well what what are the consequences of terminating the original part-time position if somebody has been employed for for multi you know several years they may have accrued you know, their annual leave and, and potentially long service leave. They'll have entitlements that need to be paid out and they may actually have provision for leave, so for notice before that job is terminated or even redundancy. So let's say somebody has been working with you part-time 20 hours a week for 10 years. Well, there's a redundancy, there's a annual leave, accrued payout, any accrued annual leave gets paid out. Um, notice has to be provided for termination um, and it has to all be done by agreement unless it's a performance management issue which again we won't go down that path right now but um yeah there's quite a lot to that and it's i guess it is really interesting right now considering just how many people whose employment obligations have been amended hopefully by agreement but due to covid um, it's just been such massive change in, in all of the employment arrangements or many of many employment arrangements around the country. So lots of complexity. There are basically three ways an employment contract come to an end. A, by mutual agreement. B, through redundancy. So the employer needs to show that the job is no longer required. And C, through termination. And one needs to watch out that it doesn't fall under unfair dismissals. Yeah, redundancy. Termination and mutual Termination agreement. And, yep, and mutual agreement. Yep. For each of those, there is a clear process that needs to be gone through. Yeah, I guess the only one that doesn't require sort of notice is is um, summary. Agreement. Well, yeah, there's there's that. You could both agree that everything finishes to, right you know, now. Right now, but there's also summary termination as well, which is where something is so serious, a behaviour is so serious that it warrants the immediate termination of the employment relationship without notice, theft or, or um, yeah, you know, sexual harassment yeah. or, or something like that. And what is that called? What kind of termination is that called? Summary, but it's, it, it just doesn't, you, you don't necessarily have to pay out notice or anything.
none of these three things. The employment contract is actually not ended, neither by mutual agreement, nor by redundancy, nor by termination. A stand down just means you physically can't work at the moment because of fire, flooding, or a virus. And hence, you can't go to work, you can't work, you're not paid for your work because you're not working, but your other entitlements like annual leave, sick leave and long service leave continue accruing as they had before. Is that right? Yeah, it is. I think it's important to distinguish between what was uh, the common understanding of the term stand down prior to, to COVID or BC as we're calling it before COVID and what is now commonly known as stand down. So beforehand, if, um, and I'm sure people, most people would be aware of it, but if, if there was an investigation required around some type of behaviour, you would frequently say to somebody, I've stood, I'm standing you down with pay whilst we conduct an investigation into this matter. And that was the way everyone used to talk about stand down. But the way that we're talking about it now is, yeah, in the sense that for some reason, outside of the employer's control, they can no longer productively use the labour that is you know, within the business and they can stand down that workforce until such time as they can productively use it again. And that's always been there since section 524 of the Fair Work Act. And um, it would typically have been used more in industrial relations disputes, like where there was strikes or lockouts and things like that. But in this case, it's that force majeure, that, that act of God arrangement, which just means you know, a, a pub can't open and therefore they can't utilise their workers and they have the right to stand them down. That said, there's now been a whole new set of legislation introduced called the JobKeeper Directives, which provide employers with greater power to stand down and amend the employment that's being performed on a unilateral yes. basis rather than on an agreement. Before COVID, there was basically a stand down with pay and a stand down without pay. But everything continued as it was. Once the person came back to work, everything was exactly the way it was before. That's how it used to be before COVID-19. But now with COVID-19, it is different in terms of that when people come back to work or stay at work, the hours might have changed and the directions might have changed and the when and where might have changed. Is that right? Yes, it comes straight back into the role as, as soon as it's available and continue on as though nothing had ever happened. So that's the big change. That yeah, so the big change is, is that the new provisions, the JobKeeper directives, allow an employer to direct an employee not to work on a particular day or particular days of the week as they so usually the would. Yeah, to work less, less hours. Um, than they ordinarily would or on particular days or just less hours in general and not to be paid for a period of work that is not performed as well. So, you know, under the awards, it's not uncommon for a part-time. And the reason for this is that under an award or an enterprise agreement, there's commonly a provision in there that says if you're part-time, you must work a minimum of 15 hours per week and any alteration to that with less than two weeks notice would require that you were paid a penalty or paid for the hours that you, you weren't required to work 
So they're, they're very rigid structures in enterprise agreements and awards around, you know, how many hours, what days, all of that type of thing. And, and lots of notice has to be provided to amend any of it. And these new JobKeeper directives allow you to sort of override those, the rigidity in the system. So you can change the when, the where? Yep. And even the how. And the how. Yep. Because you might, you can also direct people to perform work, you know, any type of work that might be available, provided that's reasonably safe to do so. So um, whereas before a person may have been well, well within their rights to say, I'm, I'm not prepared to do that type of work. It's not, it's not in my job description. Under these arrangements, we're looking for, for greater flexibility. What happens to the other entitlements? Because I've heard a number of business owners saying, oh, I changed all my employees to casual. And my gut feeling is that they haven't been changed to casual so that annual leave, sick leave, et cetera, continues accruing as it did before. Because to change somebody to casual, you would have to come to a mutual agreement that the employment contract is changed to casual, I assume. Yeah. Or it would have had to be a redundancy that the job is no longer available, which of course would be the case under COVID-19, but then the proper process would have had to be followed. When you told somebody that they don't need to come back on Monday and you tell them this on Friday afternoon, then even though you might think it's a redundancy, it's not because it didn't follow the proper process and the same with termination. So I think that a lot of business owners who think that they changed their employers to casual actually haven't done so they're actually still party to a, the normal employment contract yeah definitely i think there's a lot of ambiguity and misunderstanding around the right way to have done things the other the other consideration here is that the um job keeper directives weren't actually approved until i'm gonna say the 9th of april yep the 9th of april and so anything that was done prior to the 9th of April that, that to, you know, the, for example, changing somebody from part-time, like in the example I gave before to casual and therefore undercutting the minimum number of hours that they are entitled to each week, that's not actually even covered under the JobKeeper directives. So, but I know it certainly happened and, and I don't blame people. They, they just had to do what they had to do. And it's going to be very interesting seeing how all of a lot of this unwinds. And I also just, you know, I, I commonly, I've been practicing employment law and, and helping in businesses and employers with employment related matters for 20 years. And I'm always surprised at just the, the complexity in the system and therefore, uh, to some extent, the naivety in practice. And, and a lot of people just don't understand the difference between casual, part-time and permanent and, and the conditions and, you know, all the things we've been discussing. It's just not, it's not common knowledge, really. So yes. uh, yeah, I would highly expect that a lot of people have got it wrong. The Fair Work Ombudsman themselves did an audit across Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane in you know high foot traffic, retail areas and food courts. And this was done in September 2019, I think, or maybe July 2019. And they found that 74% of the businesses that they audited, did they sort of flash audits on, were not compliant with some form of employment regulation, whether the pay slips were wrong or they weren't paying the right rates of pay or they were paying under the wrong award or they weren't tracking hours correctly or what it, whatever it might have been. But, you know, the ombudsman themselves discovered that 74% of companies were not compliant. 
I'm surprised Sorry. that it was only 74%. I would have thought it would be 80 or 90% I, I of would small say business. Yeah, I mean, when you start to dig into the legislation and, and all of the uh, microcosms of regulation that are there, you could almost guarantee that every business is doing something wrong. Yes. But that's the same as imagining, you know, when you go and get your driver's license in Australia and it's probably the, the, the best you've ever driven, you'll ever drive in your entire life in terms of keeping both hands perfectly on the wheel and head checks and everything. Is supposed to, yeah. And then once we've, once we've got our license, you know, we just drive comfortably and I'm sure that's, but I'm sure most of us are not doing things hundred percent correct or all of us aren't doing things hundred percent correct. And, and that's basically the same with employment. We're doing the best we know, but it's almost impossible to be hundred percent correct all of the time. But I also think it's very easy to get away with it of not doing it 100% correct. I'm going to get a bit philosophical here, but you say to do it wrong and get away with it is quite easy. My approach is that even if you don't get prosecuted by the Fair Work Ombudsman, you're not necessarily getting away from it or getting away with it because employment is one of those things that's built on trust. Like any relationship, it's all about trust. And even if, if your employees know that you're cutting corners and, you know, some things like access to the Fair Work Information Statement for all employees, that's probably one that, you know, no one's going to care if they didn't have access to the Fair Work Information Statement, but technically every employee always has to have access to it. But if they know that you're not keeping accurate hours or your pay slips are wrong or your pay date changes by 24 hours every fortnight or something, you know, it's just always moving around you aren't getting away with it because you've lost the trust of your workforce. And the moment you've lost the trust of your workforce, you've lost the effort of your workforce because no one that if someone doesn't trust you, they're not going to work hard as, or as hard as they could if they really believed and trusted in you. So as I said, it's a bit philosophical, but my approach is that the greater the trust in the relationship, the better the outcomes for everybody. And that's what I think should drive people to, to be as compliant as possible. If they made somebody redundant as of, let's say, 2nd of March, and I say 2nd of March, so they still qualify for the JobKeeper payment as of 1st of March, I understand that you can then bring them back from the 30th of March when the JobKeeper payment actually starts and you don't have to pay the gap between the 2nd of March and the 30th of March. Is that right? That's right. If you have made them redundant and you've made them redundant appropriately, you've followed the, the right process, then they may have already been paid out notice. They would have been paid out new accrued leave and that type of thing. So looking at the timeframes involved, they may have already been covered by or earning have had some type of compensation for that period and then yeah from the 1st of april or 30th of march then they can come back onto the books as an employee even if they're stood down and still receive the job keeper payment of 1500 per fortnight and if you made somebody redundant before the 1st of march because you didn't know the job keeper payment was coming then you basically have to roll the redundancy back exactly the, yeah. and i think that's possible you can then basically say oops that was a mistake i didn't mean to make you redundant but then you have to pay this the salary from whenever you made them redundant to the 30th of june yeah so i'm saying if they followed the right process and uh, it's hard to construct it without you know without looking at all the weeks involved but the more likely 
issue is for most businesses is if they did it correctly, they would have been paying out two weeks notice of, for redundancy for any employee that's been employed for more than 12 months and then an extra week for any employee for each year and then an extra two weeks on top of that for employees who are over the age of 45. So if you made people redundant in the appropriate way, they probably, and they've been employed for more than 12 months, they probably would have received at least two to two weeks to four or maybe more weeks pay as part of that redundancy payout. And I think, again, constructing the timeframes here, I think that would have covered you over the period from March into April anyway. But yeah, when you undo the redundancy, you then have to say, well, okay, all the all of the, the notice and, and everything else I paid out to you because I had to, I need all that back. And the prime minister has been fairly transparent in saying, if you've made somebody redundant and you choose to bring them back onto your books because of JobKeeper, but you've already paid them out all of their entitlements, you need to work that out directly with the employee and they may need to repay the money. I understand it depends very much on whether you work for the JobKeeper payment or not. If you work for the JobKeeper payment or you're even paid more than the JobKeeper payment, then any payment is subject to super. If you don't work at all for the JobKeeper payment, then it's not subject to super. And if it's in between, then only what you actually work is subject to super. Is that right? Yes. Yes, it is. I just look at the JobKeeper payment, you know, particularly the fifteen hundred. If you, if somebody stood down and they're getting paid the fifteen hundred dollars, what the government is effectively doing is using employers to to distribute unemployment benefits or you know benefits to individuals in society in a really scale like highly scaled and efficient way. And so, if you're not going to earn super on Job Seeker then it makes sense that you wouldn't be earning super on JobKeeper if all you're getting paid is the JobKeeper allowance. Anything over and above that is a salary. And obviously you get paid super on your, on your salary. If, for example, you earn $2,000 a fortnight and you work for those $2,000 and now your employer applies for JobKeeper, you only get super on the $500 excess? Oh. You, would, you would get super on the full 2000 because you're you working for the full 2000 yeah because you're in that case the employer is getting the $1500 and they're using it to supplement your wage rather than paying it directly through you so whatever um, you work for you get super yeah so that you're not disadvantaged to go onto the job keeper because otherwise there would be a there would be a strong incentive not to go onto the job keeper when you're working anyway because you would lose your super yes just checking that super. Participating employers will be required to ensure eligible employees receive at a minimum $1,500 per fortnight before tax. It will be up to the employer if they want to pay superannuation on any additional wage paid because of the JobKeeper payment. Yeah, I do agree with you that the way it's worded, it very much sounds like that only the excess is covered by super, but I just struggle to believe that. That would disadvantage employees who are working for the $1,500. The way you framed it, if you're working for the money, then you get paid the super. I think that's prob that is A, accurate, and B, a, a, just a good way to, if you'd like to, to think about it. Because if an employee was earning $1,000 per fortnight before JobKeeper, and then yes. as a result of JobKeeper, you're paying them $1,500 per fortnight, 
you would still be paying them super on the thousand dollars that they were earning beforehand. And that shouldn't stop. I think the discretion there is whether or not you have to pay super on the additional $500. Yes, yeah. if they don't work for the $500. I agree with yeah. you. If they always just work for $1,000 a fortnight and now they're getting $1,500 a fortnight, then of course they don't get super on the top up. I agree with you. Yes. Yeah. The legislation says that you can pay it. It just doesn't require you to pay it. That's fair. That's, yeah. that's fair. There are a lot of employment contracts out there at the moment that are still legally valid where small business owners think they're torn up and no longer valid. Definitely. I guess another issue is there are a lot of businesses who stood people down prior to the introduction of the JobKeeper directives, but their business wasn't directly affected or it wasn't affected to the extent that they were told to shut down it wasn't like they were a pub where they just couldn't open its doors you know they may have been because of your audience i'll say an accounting firm that noticed that 50 percent of their their work just wasn't coming in so they decided to to stand some people down to accommodate that but technically they weren't eligible to stand people down because they're just a decline in trade is not sufficient to exercise the stand down provisions. And there would be people who are, I'm, I'm sure have been stood down or made redundant in circumstances that ordinarily just wouldn't be permissible. And that would have happened, happened before the 7th of April. So they're the ones that I'm concerned about. I think that COVID is, uh, is an exceptional circumstance and I would hope as humans we would be forgiving and accepting that, that mistakes have been made and, and that we just try and all work together to put things right. No one would have done, you know, no one would have chosen this to happen. No one knew how to deal with it because it never happened before. Mistakes have been made. They mm. can be put right. And I hope that you just don't end up in court. Will some people? Yeah. I think I've already seen some cases where unions are pushing for particular things to be changed and stand down directives to be reversed and all sorts of stuff. So there is definitely some industrial action and disputes forming up around it, but I hope they are the rare exception rather than the, the rule. Be open, be transparent, talk through what was going on in your head at the time and how and why you thought it all made sense and then you know, work together to form a an agreement that puts things back. Welcome back. So the when, where and how is more flexible under COVID-19, but otherwise general employment law applies. We will have another round of updates next week. Thank you for listening and thank you to Klaus for their support. Bye for now and see you next week. me from wrong employment hero as a business or as an accountant etc you join and then for a flat fee each month you can call with any hr related questions and you get an answer is, is that a good summary uh no no it's, it's part of what we do employment hero is um is a complete digital employment management platform so it includes everything from employment contracts and policies 
it includes, you know, it's integrated with, it, it goes all the way through to payroll. It's integrated with the immigration office. It really just automates every part of employment and goes all the way through to an online, unlimited online training courses, performance reviews and surveys. It's a phenomenally broad employment management platform. And it was designed by me to give the average business owner everything that they need to be a great employer without having to think about it, just to make it easy. So yeah, it's much broader than that. We do include a service, which is our HR advisor line, which is exactly what you described, but that's a separate added service to Employment Hero. Employment Hero is a technology platform. And when you say it also covers payroll, would you then not do payroll in zero, but you would do it through Employment Hero and then Employment Hero would feed it into zero through an integration? There's three parts to running payroll. The first is is time, like managing the time element of, of payroll. Yeah, how many like hours days, did you work? Days, hours, weeks, etc., periods. So you have to have a time tracking system. The second element is award interpretation. Now, again, I'm, I'm talking about industries that are relevant here, but um, that means correctly applying every provision of the relevant awards, or in most cases, multiple awards, and then calculating what an employee is entitled to be to earn in all of the, taking into account all of the time data and all of their personal circumstances and the work details. And then you know what you have to pay people. The last part of payroll is actually paying people. What Zero does well is the last part. What Employment Hero does is we have a time and attendance system, we have an award interpretation system, and then we also have payroll. And yeah, we do end to, the end-to-end -end part. Rostering system, time tracking system, award interpretation, payroll, and then STP, you know, all, the, all of the, the fun tax stuff as well and it's integrated the ATO. I would assume you also have a native integration with Zero, don't you? Yeah, we do. So we have um, about 40% of our customers use our payroll system and the other 60% use either Zero or um, Myob or Intuit. Now there's two pieces of content that our team have put together. JobKeeper Directives Guide. So it's quite a, um, it's a 24 page guide on how to apply all of the directives that we were just talking about. And we also have a JobKeeper payment guide, which is very comprehensive. It's 36 pages of how to apply the JobKeeper legislation. It's our COVID-19 resources hub, which is phenomenal. It's just, it's dozens and dozens of really good guides. It's all free. You do need to put an email address in to get there, but other than that, it's um, it's incredible what the team have put together. So I'll share that with you. Also mentioned that on Friday this week, we're releasing a JobKeeper wizard into the platform, and that will send and retrieve signed JobKeeper nomination forms. It will also create the JobKeeper application list for all of the eligible employees, and then it will um, submit that through to the ATO. And so it's a complete JobKeeper workflow that we've, we're just finalizing now, but it should be, it'll be finished by Friday afternoon. Mm -hmm.